Now tonight as we finish Philippians 4, as we get into this conclusion that Paul has written, Paul has actually written to us as a good essay writer would. Now I don't know if you remember essay writing skills from school or university, but I remember at Varsity one of our lecturers teaching us the way to do this. With an essay in your introduction, you say what you are going to say, then in the body of the essay, you say it, and then in the conclusion, you say what you have just said. And for Paul's conclusion tonight, he does just that. He doesn't introduce any new information. He just tells us what he's spoken about before, which sounds a bit boring, but it's not. Actually, amazingly, he speaks about themes of joy and contentment and mission and gospel partnership in fresh and exciting ways. But he also does something amazing. He, he takes a page out of the Marvel blockbuster playbook. And what he does right at the end of his letter, this kind of post-credit scene, when you think everything is seen and done, is he leaves one last breadcrumb about the work of God that is going on in Rome. But before we get to that, let's read the first uh, portion of this passage. Philippians 4 verse 10 to 20. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. New Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God." And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is concluding the main points of this letter here and wrapping things up. And maybe the first thing I want to touch on tonight is something you might remember from chapter 1 verse 3 to 5 where Paul wrote and said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul had planted this church in Macedonia, the first church ever planted in Europe, and he had a close relationship with these people. I don't know if you remember, but we went back to Acts 16 and we looked at those three gospel conversations with Paul and Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer. And after a while, Paul had moved. You know, God had moved him on to a new city, to a new place, to carry on gospel ministry, plant churches, preach the gospel, make disciples and all of that. And this church in Philippi had continued to partner with him financially, with prayer, with people for the work that he was doing to make disciples and preach the gospel and plant new churches. And really, gospel partnership is something we've talked about a bunch over the years. And it looks like the three Ps, you know, people, provision, and prayer. 
And when we speak about that, we see that through Paul's letters, that this is the way churches partnered together to see God's kingdom advance. They were praying for one another and for the work of God to advance in their areas. They would send people to one another with gifts and talents who could come in and help and strengthen and build up those churches. And then they provided for one another, whether that's finances or resources, to see the churches strengthened. And that's what the Philippian church were doing with Paul. They were funding him and his ministry as he went into new places to build the kingdom. And what we see here is that churches partner together in the gospel. This is actually what we're doing right now. Like you might think that this is just a Sunday gathering, like a Sunday spiritual event that's happening where we come together and then we spread out and carry on and live our own lives. But we're actually growing as disciples and missionaries together here in Harvest City as one community. And then we are going out every week to do ministry and advance God's kingdom in the other six days. Like we we care about that here at home in Durban, but also beyond us and to other parts of South Africa and Africa and to the ends of the earth. Now, in this letter, what Paul highlights is the financial partnership side of gospel partnership. He's writing to thank them for sending Epaphroditus to him with a financial gift in the prison in Rome. And what we see is that the church in Philippi is supporting ministry that doesn't benefit them. Think about that for a second. They were giving so that other people in other places could hear the gospel and grow in their faith and that new churches could be planted that they might never visit, that they might never see or I guess never even receive pictures from because they didn't have the technology for that. So they were giving sacrificially because they were not a wealthy church and they were giving in such a way that others would benefit and receive and they wanted to serve the mission of God in that way. I just want to let you know this, that Harbour City as a church aims every month to give 10% of our income towards social justice and 10% of our income towards apostolic ministry or towards uh, the work of serving and strengthening other churches and other places. And I love that we have invested financially into churches in Durban, in other parts of South Africa, in Northern Africa, and even into Lisbon in Portugal. I think that's such a cool thing because this is what apostolic churches do. Churches shouldn't just exist for themselves and their people and their needs. They should exist for the kingdom beyond themselves, for for those beyond their own borders. Now listen, as I speak about this today, some of you are sitting there going, okay, what's the offering? What's the special offering we're taking up? But there isn't one. We're, We're not taking up an apostolic offering. You know, we're not sending baskets to your house after this or banking details won't pop up on the screen. I think actually talking about apostolic giving today is one of the benefits of just working through a book. So we come to a moment like this and we, we don't have a special offering coming up or anything, but we can be discipled and shaped by this text and become this kind of church, a church that believes in this and gives towards this sort of thing. And I think what is a benefit of this is a passage on apostolic giving like this checks and challenges our hearts. You know, is our heart for the mission of God? Because one of the best ways that we can check that is by what we do with our money. This is a profound truth, but our bank statements are vision and mission statements for what we believe in and what matters most to us. If you want to know the vision of your life, if you want to know the mission of your life, check what you spend your money on. And Jesus says this, this is all over the Bible, but in Matthew 6, Jesus says, where your treasures are, there your heart will be also. The idea there is what we put money into is what we care about most. And we can lead our hearts by investing money into the things that should matter most to us. 
So the question here in Philippians 4 is what are you investing into? What do you value most? Because that will lead your heart. And Paul kind of moves from this apostolic giving language to Old Testament language of the sacrificial system, you know, the temple and all of that. Something he also speaks about in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, where he speaks about us giving our lives as a living sacrifice, which is a fragrant offering to God, an act of worship. And he's speaking about this here, pointing back to the Old Testament temple and actually the the lambs or the pigeons or the other animals that would be brought and would be offered up to God, would be burnt, and the, the aroma of the meat would go up to God and would please God. And really what he's saying here is as we live lives of sacrificial generosity and service and partnership in the gospel that fragrance goes up to God's nostrils and it pleases him God is pleased with that kind of living now I don't know what scent or aroma pleases you I know for me the smell of good coffee is amazing I know I love the smell of tasty food or meat cooking on the briar I love the smell of shell wearing perfume Uh, it's very alluring I love the smell of leather-bound books. There's nothing quite like being in a beautiful library or office with rich mahogany and leather-bound books. But Paul writes here and says sacrificial generosity is an aroma that pleases God. And he even brags about the generosity of the Philippians when he writes to the church in Corinth. He says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1 to 5, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty. You don't expect to see those things together. Uh, Their abundant joy and extreme poverty. You, You generally expect that to be a part. Well, here it overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And not just as we had hoped, instead they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. Paul is bragging here about the Philippians' generosity. And he calls this their generosity even in the midst of extreme poverty and great trials, the grace of God given to them. This generosity inside of them was the grace of God evident in this community. And it's kind of like what we spoke about last year. You know, we we did that series on gifting and calling. We spoke about these grace gifts that God gives us. It could be prophecy or leadership or mercy or administration or faith or tongues or words of knowledge, whatever it is. This church had a grace gift from God to give and be generous. And maybe what's an interesting thing to note there is that just like people have unique personalities and giftings and I guess unique distinctives, churches are the same. This church in Philippi was uniquely gifted by God to be generous. Now this grace that Paul writes about here isn't a grace that saves us. It's a grace that sends us out to serve. You know, we each freely receive salvation from God by grace as a gift. And a result, as a result of this, this church in Philippi wanted to freely be generous to others, freely give so that others could meet Jesus like they had. And this generosity that's like going on through their lives to others is evidence that they have encountered the grace of God. It's evidence of their salvation. You know, what they've experienced is this lavish generosity from God is something that they are pouring out to others. And that's the way the gospel works. God is generous to us in Christ, so we want to be generous to others. And the Philippians, during the severe trial 
are not focused on themselves and their needs. They're not looking inward. This should challenge us at the moment. They're looking outward to the world around them, to the needs of others and giving and serving other people. They're committed to the mission of God, even in severe trials. And what strikes me here is this group don't have an abundance of wealth to serve the mission of God. In fact, you could say they have an abundance of poverty. Paul says extreme poverty, but they also have an abundance of joy in Jesus. And this joy in him is the engine which leads them to give and serve in this way. Now listen, you and I might not have the same grace gift that the church in Philippi had. Harbor City might not have that same gift. But listen, even if this doesn't come as easy to you as it did to the Philippians, we still receive this generosity from God and we want to live as generous people towards others. We want to be generous towards God. We want to be generous towards the church, towards the mission of God, towards those in need, towards the people in our lives and in our city. We want to give generously so that actually, just as heaven has come down to earth in our lives, heaven might flow through us to see the kingdom of God come in the lives of others. So where does their abundance of joy come from, even in their trials and poverty? Well, Philippians 4 is actually a chapter that teaches us how to live content and with joy, even in the midst of trials. So let's look at the three things Paul teaches us about how to live content in any and all circumstances. Firstly, he says our contentment is unrelated to our circumstances. Verse 11 and 12, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What we see here is that one of the ways that we can live with joy and contentment in a time of trials is by changing our mindset and the way we see our trials. Paul is actually modeling this to us from prison as he writes this letter. You know, he's sitting in prison on death row. He doesn't know what the future holds or whether he will get out. But he's speaking to us about contentment and joy at a time where he is facing trial and difficulty. And he is saying that he has learned to be content in any and all circumstances. Maybe I can just ask you some questions today as you watch this. What do you believe you need to be content? You know, if you were to fill in the blank, if I had dot, 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 then I would be content. What would that be for you? And if you're not feeling content today, what, what do you believe you need or, or what would need to change for you to feel content? What Paul is saying to us is the answer is Jesus. The, the fill in the blank answer should be him because he is the only one that can enable us and allow us to live with joy and contentment in any and all situations. The second thing Paul tells us is that contentment is learned. Verse 11 and 12. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. What's important for us to see here is that as Paul writes this, this doesn't necessarily come easily to Paul. You know, Paul doesn't just have the right personality or temperament. You might go, Paul, maybe you're content easily. I'm a bit more melancholic. I struggle with some of these things. You might, you might try and write off why Paul is content in all circumstances. But here we see that this has been a process. He's had to learn this. This has taken time and energy and effort. He's had to think rightly, act rightly, so that he can live content in all circumstances. 
but it started to happen. Paul has learned this way, and now in prison, he is content. I want to ask you, what was the last thing that you learned to do, and how long did it take you? You know, was it, was it a process? Did it require a change of mindset? You know, learning some new skills, um, being taught, being mentored, being trained. I um, need to apologize because last week I publicly slandered my daughter. She's nine months old because she hasn't learned how to crawl yet. And then you know what happened on Monday? She crawled for the first time ever. And this didn't come out of nowhere. You know, we've seen she's been on the verge of crawling for probably a couple of weeks now. And this has been months of processing for her. You know, I remember when we used to do tummy time and we put her down on her stomach. Her arms would go up, her legs would go up. She looked like a little skydiver. And it just looked like she didn't even want to touch the floor with her limbs. And then over time, you know, the arms would go down, the legs would go down, but the feet weren't touching. There was no grip or traction for her to crawl. And then she'd start to push herself up. And the feet would move and then before we knew it she was kind of shuddering around and then crawling backwards and then finally crawling you know she'd seen other kids do it i think innately she was building towards this but now she started to crawl it took her months and she's only in the beginning stages of this but she's a crawler now and this is really what paul is speaking about where he says he's learned contentment you know you can learn this too You might not feel content right now, you know, in the situation or circumstance you find yourself in. But that doesn't mean this verse is untrue. No, what we see here is that we can learn to live content in whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever circumstance we face, but it's something that we learn over time in Christ. So what is Paul's secret to living with contentment? Well, the last thing is that he says contentment flows from our relationship with Christ. I'm about to read maybe the best known verse out of the book of Philippians, Philippians 4.13. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now listen, this is maybe the one verse you had memorized out of this book before we came to this letter. But this is also probably the most distorted verse, maybe in the whole Bible. You know, this verse is often used out of context as like a pep talk encouragement kind of verse. You know, the kind of verse where if you're going through a hard time, this is quoted saying, don't give up, don't throw in the towel. You can do this. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Or maybe an athlete before a big game, you know, they kiss their fingers and they point to heaven, really signaling that God is going to give them the victory. I can do this. I can win this race. I can defeat the other team. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The emphasis is on the I can do all things. With the help of God, we can do the impossible and the improbable. And that is completely true. It's just not true of what this verse is trying to say. You know, I'm five foot nine on tiptoes at a stretch. No matter how much positive thinking, no matter how many times I quote Philippians 4.13, I would never be able to slam dunk a basketball. I just can't. And the idea here is not that positive thinking or quoting this verse is going to lead to success. The idea here is that our intimacy with Jesus, dwelling in his presence, praying and spending time with him, drawing on his life, him being our sufficiency, fills us with the power to endure trials and the joy to live content in all circumstances and enables us to do everything God has called us to do. If you want to endure the current trials and challenges that you might be facing and to continue to do that with contentment and joy, then, listen, we won't be able to do that without an intimacy and connection with Jesus. That's where it all starts. That's where we need to draw from. What we've seen today in this letter and in this 
passage is this idea that Paul isn't preoccupied with the situation. You know, he's in prison, on death row. He's got every reason to be down. But he's not preoccupied with the situation. He's preoccupied with his Savior. And the Philippians, they're not preoccupied with their situation. They're in extreme poverty, facing severe trials. But for them, they're preoccupied with their Savior. They're living from a different perspective. They've got a new mindset. And we're invited to do the same. James 1 verse 2 from the NLT says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Now listen, I know the the danger with what I'm saying today is I can come across being a little bit simplistic or dismissive or even unsympathetic or uh, uncompassionate towards what you've walked through. And I know for this church, we've walked through a lot this year. Our world, people everywhere have walked through a lot, whether that's just fear and uncertainty, whether that has been having COVID or family members having it, whether that has been losing loved ones or dreams dying or losing a job, being retrenched, having salaries cut, whether that has just been relationships uh, being lost or or dreams being lost, or whether that's just been the mental health realities of being locked up at home on our own so much of this year. I know a lot has gone on. But despite the troubles we face, because this is in all circumstances, James's counsel to us is to consider what we face differently, to think differently, to perceive differently. So why does James say this? Well, he's calling us to live our lives defined by the reality of Christ not defined by the reality and these things are real but not defined by the reality of the troubles and trials that we face he's talking about a new mindset and a new lens to live with and this verse is not written like i said in the context of a sporting event or match this is written in the context of worry and anxiety don't know if you remember last week i said paul is teaching us how to pray and rejoice and thank god in any and all circumstances you know that's what's going on here and he's honoring the philippians here for the way that they have partnered with him in the gospel financially they've lived generously they've given sacrificially even though they don't have much because of their commitment to the mission of god And in light of all of this, he drops Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What we see here is the supernatural generosity that they have is flowing from their relationship with Jesus. That's what's going on here. Paul is saying that he has learned the lesson that only Christ can satisfy and sustain us always. And I want to ask you, have you learned that lesson? Have you learned that lesson? I was a pretty good uh, student at school and at varsity, except for grade 11 and 12 maths. I actually quite enjoyed some of maths, but in grade 11 and 12, it was a bad situation. I was just sitting with my best friends. Uh, We just goofed off all of the time. Grade 11, we had the foundations that we could get through. We had a good teacher. um, So we scraped through that year. In grade 12, I think our teacher wasn't great. We'd missed out on a lot in grade 11. There was a whole bunch of gaps in our learning. And when it came to trials, uh, I didn't get a great mark. So because of that, I had to go and see a maths tutor on the weekends to try and get my marks up for finals. And it was so silly, you know, because I'd wasted that time and energy. I'd been doing other things when I should have been learning maths. It meant that I needed to spend more time and more energy and more money and more effort relearning what I should have learned the first time just so that I could get a good grade for my maths final. And Paul's really writing to us here saying the same thing. 
He wants to save us time and effort and energy and money and heartbreak and hurt from looking everywhere else for contentment when he knows it's only found in Jesus. It's kind of like that Jim Carrey quote that I've shared with you before, where he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Paul's saying what Jim Carrey is saying here. He's saying, listen, I've lived my life. I've experienced a lot. And what I've experienced is that Jesus alone can satisfy and sustain. He is the only one who can enable us to be content and joyful in all circumstances. It's only in Christ. Now remember, again, finally, Paul is writing this from prison. His whole life has been thrown on its head. He's in Rome. He's been so excited to share the gospel there. And now he's in prison potentially going to die. He's had to adapt his whole life and strategy and thinking because he's in this cell and he feels like God is con- like continuing to call him to pray and serve and share the gospel and do his work. And I think a lot of us would look at Paul and we'd go, bro, like just calm down, just take a break, rest, you do you for a while, you've been working hard, you're in jail. But Paul knows that God has called him to continue his work and he does. He, he adjusts by the grace of God to keep doing what he's called to do. He was going to radically trust God inside a hard situation, which is amazing. That's the contentment we're talking about today. And Paul finishes this letter in prison, writing with these remarks uh, that are very subtle, but would have been hugely encouraging to the Philippian church about the work that God is continuing to do through him, even while he's in prison in Rome, to see the gospel advance. You ready for this? This is the post-credits trailer I promised you at the beginning. This is something that we can easily miss, which should blow our minds. Philippians 4 verse 21 to 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Did you see it? Did you see that end credits scene? Basically, what I wanted to highlight here is that Paul writes and says that there are Jesus followers in Caesar's household. Now, listen, that might not blow our minds so much, but this would have been huge for the Philippian church. Remember, I said a few weeks ago, um, I guess we talked about just the context of Caesar and the Roman Empire and being the church in a Roman colony like Philippi. We spoke about how Julius Caesar, the Roman emperor, had been assassinated on the Ides of March in 44 BC. And then there'd been a comet in July and his adopted son, Octavius, later was known as Augustus, claimed that was his father ascending to heaven to take his rightful place as a god. You know, we serve Jesus who ascended to heaven, to the right hand of the father. Then in 42 BC, uh, Julius Caesar was well acknowledged as a deity in the Roman Empire. And that meant that his son, Augustus, was now known as the Son of God, a name that we use for Jesus. Around the Roman Empire, probably the most um, well-known cry was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Kyrios or King. And the church would declare Jesus is Kyrios or Lord or King. The Roman Empire also had a number of propaganda statements, one of which was, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved other than Caesar. Check Acts 4 verse 12. That's what the apostles proclaim about Christ. The emperors even uh, commanded or declared that they needed to be known as Dominus et Deus Noster, our Lord and our God. Caesar and the emperors were worshipped and were revered as gods. 
And that meant that Caesar and the Roman Empire and Jesus and the church and the kingdom were at odds. That's why Paul is in prison for preaching what he's preached. And in that day, saying Jesus is Lord wasn't just a, oh, cool, you do you kind of thing. No, this wasn't just a personal religious belief. It was a subversive statement about reality that challenged the Roman Empire. The gospel of Jesus was political, was social, it was economic, it was cultural. And because of that, if you were to declare Jesus as Lord, what you were saying is that you believed in a different king, you were part of a different kingdom, and you trusted in a different gospel. You were at odds with the Roman Empire. And now what Paul does is he casually just drops this morsel at the end of his letter. He says to the Philippians, oh, by the way, guys, the Christians, you know, your brothers and sisters, the ones who live in Caesar's household, they say, how's it? And you can imagine like the Philippians who were napping or kind of zoned out during the reading of this letter. All of a sudden they go, Caesar's household. Hang on. Wait, wait. What did Paul just say? Paul, hey, hang on. What did you just say? Followers of Jesus living in Caesar's household, in his house, right under his nose. He's got some of us living under his roof, eating meals with him. We don't know exactly what that looked like. That could have been slaves. It could have been Roman guards who maybe had been like guards of Paul's prisoner. Maybe it was his family members. But actually what is going on is there are Christians living in the palace of Caesar. I don't know how that worked. Maybe they walked past each other. Maybe they had a little prayer meeting or Bible study from time to time. And in secret they'd walk past each other and do a specific nod or wink. Or maybe they had a little saying or made a little cross sign as they walked past each other just to say, my brother, my sister. But this is incredible. Paul includes this as the second to last verse, as a bit of a breadcrumb, a morsel, this amazing trailer of what God could do in Rome through him and his ministry. But really he's saying, despite the trials and challenges we face, the kingdom of God is advancing. I read a book a few years ago by a sociologist named Rodney Stark. At the time of writing the book, wasn't a Christian, but he was writing about the explosive growth of the church in the first few centuries. Books called The Rise of Christianity. And he says that in the Roman Empire, which was about 60 million people at the time, 0.0017% of the empire were Christian. But just a few hundred years ago, later in 350 AD, according to his research, over 56.5% of the Roman Empire were followers of Jesus. And that strikes me. Caesar was the most powerful man in the world at that time. His empire extended over the known world. The church was just a tiny group of people in that empire. 0.0017%. But somehow God was at work. Somehow Jesus, who is Lord, was building his church, advancing his kingdom, and his gospel was going out. And more and more men and women of every age and race and background and economic uh, distinction were coming to know him and to follow him. And as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, all over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. That's how Paul ends this letter. He speaks about gospel partnership. Let's work together to see this happen. He speaks about contentment in Jesus so that even when things are tough, we don't give up, we keep going. And then he leaves this morsel just letting us know God is at work doing incredible things in Rome and all over the world. And he wants to use you. He wants to use me. He wants to use Harbor City. He wants to use the churches of Durban to see this kingdom advance and see more and more people come to know Jesus and the good news of the gospel. Let's pray.
Father, I ask you for everyone watching this today that you would encourage them where they're at. I pray, Lord, fill us with faith to advance your kingdom, to partner in the gospel. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would actually commission us and show us the things you would have us do. Lord, I pray for the people watching this today that we would get to know Jesus better and live and find contentment in him. And lastly, I pray that you would do it again. We thank you, Lord, for those Christians in Caesar's household. And we pray, Lord, again for miracles, for signs and wonders, for you to connect us with people that would come to believe in you and would play a significant influence on our city and our world. We ask, Lord, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.